Take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, appreciate the worship team leading today, and, and of course we miss Pastor Dan and his family. Uh, they've been sick this week, and so pray for them as they recover and, uh, and everything else. And so a lot of stuff going around, obviously. And uh, so appreciate, again, the worship to prepare our hearts for the message. Today we're going to do things just a little bit differently. Um, we're going to read um, the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes 2. And you might be thinking, how are you going to get through 26 verses? My wife asked me the same question. But needless to say, you can just sit on the edge of your seat. All right? And uh, the title of the message today is Our Great Need. And so I'm going to ask you just to remain seated just because of the, the length of time that we'll be reading the scriptures here. And, uh, and so, feel, again, you, just, you can remain seated as we read God's word. Beginning in verse 1, Solomon writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you in, with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I told and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up in despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart that which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I, I want to put two images up on the screen. One, the first image you're going to see is from something that happened just this past year. This is the Titan. 
It is a vessel that went down into the ocean to explore, to see the Titanic. And it took, I believe, five, six, seven people were in it. And as it plunged into the depths of the ocean, it experienced what was called a catastrophic implosion. The water pressure was so forceful that it just literally obliterated the vessel and anyone that was in that vessel literally would have just been shredded to pieces. In some sense, they would have just materialized, vanished, just like that. You can go online, you can watch, I've watched YouTube video simulations of what it was like. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Here's another picture. Maybe a little bit more elegant, but one familiar to us. There are no names or dates, but there's a dash. And that's a tombstone. And so as you look at that, what these two pictures have in common is that they remind us that we are all approaching our last day on earth. We will die. Death is an undeniable, unavoidable reality. In fact, listen to this. This is one author that just writes about death, and he's actually commenting on uh, the writings of a French philosopher who lived 400 years ago called um, Blaise Pascal. And Pascal wrote a book of just Christian reflections, and he wrote extensively reflecting on the reality of death and how that informs the way we think and live as Christians. And so this writer named Peter Kreft writes this. He says, death is the most unsentimental of facts, simple, decisive, businesslike. There is no nonsense, no evasion, no nuancing, no little mental two steps about death. It can ruin your whole day. In death, you lose everything. No matter what you've acquired in life, no matter how happy you've been in life, even if you've conquered the whole world, we all know that we're going to lose it all in death. Death drains oceans away. Death drains the universe away. Ladies and gentlemen, death is the only thing in life of which we can be certain. It is the one thing that we dread the most, and it's the one thing that we talk about the least. Death comes, and it's like a slap in the face. It stops us in our tracks. And yet, it is also the most unnatural thing. Though some would say, almost in a psychotic way, that death is natural. It's not natural. It's unnatural. It's not a part of the stages of life. It is the curse. That's exactly what Genesis 3 presents death to be. Death may come with the news of dreaded test results that you receive from a doctor. Death may allow you to prepare for its arrival. And then at other times it comes suddenly in a natural disaster or a car accident or some other tragedy. Death comes to infants. Death comes to children. Death happens to teenagers. Death happens to all. Rarely do we think about death in a meaningful way. But we should. Because death is so awful, it makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so incredibly wonderful. In fact, if you went home and you just thought about the songs we sang, and you sat quietly, undistracted, and and with no diversions in, in your mind or heart, and you just thought about the reasons why you were joyful over our singing today, and even as we go through this sermon... You know what you'd come down to? You'd probably come down to this, that one of the reasons why you're so joyful is because we just celebrated Christ's victory over death. We do that every Sunday. And yet death here is the spot, is given the spotlight in Ecclesiastes. The preacher king writing his thesis for this book in chapter 1 has already told us that life is a breath. That's what vanity means. Life is a breath. It is a mist. It is a vapor. It is a, it is smoke rising from a candle that's been blown out. Life is short and it's elusive. You can't comprehend or control the way things are in the world under the sun cursed by the fall. 
And in light of that, the preacher has asked the question, is there any lasting gain that can be discovered in the world? And in chapters 1 and 2, what Ecclesiastes does is, is basically saturates us with this reality of death. The truth that that life is a breath and that death will come and that there is no real lasting profit that or gain that we will ever find in the world as it currently is. And there's nothing in life that's ever going to change this that we can do or discover. And so as you come to this section, this chapter 2, um, this, this chapter it finishes out Solomon's experiments and, and what he does in chapters 1 and 2 is prepares us for living. But the whole point is, is that we can't really prepare to live until we have thought meaningfully about death. And here's the idea. The big idea that you'll see here as you go through chapter 2, and we'll do it in giant segments. The big idea is this. The key truth is this. Death gives us the perspective we need to live and enjoy life. I mean, if you really paid attention to the reading that we, that we just did of Ecclesiastes 2, what you see is, is that we are given a perspective and death is what is giving us the perspective on how we're to live. And in fact, everything after this, all the wisdom that we may glean from the book of Ecclesiastes comes from this starting point. We will die. And if we start there then we'll know how to live. And so we're going to look at this theme in three different ways. We're going to, we're going to look at the, the perspective death gives us by, by examining the pleasures that we pursue, by seeing the problem that we all face, and then receiving the perspective that we all need. And so the first thing you're going to see is really a continuation of chapter 1, the pleasures that we pursue. Notice in verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. This is the second test that he's going to do, experiment. He's already experimented with knowledge and wisdom and education. And while wisdom and knowledge and education are not bad things in of themselves, when you come to the end of chapter 2, what you find out is, after all the degrees that he has, learned, he has gained from the University of Jerusalem and his experiences in life, nothing in the world of education, nothing in all the knowledge that can be gained in life or from the world could undo the reality that life is but a mist. It couldn't change that. And when you come to the end of chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. In other words, all my education didn't take away the sorrow of life. It didn't change the fact that it's all disappearing just like that. And so now what he does is, is he turns and he's going to go to pleasure. And he's going to say, okay, well, I couldn't find any gain in education, any, any eternal satisfaction in education. Now I'm going to examine pleasure. And that's what he does in verse 1 through 11. In verses 1 through 3, what you see is he experiments with pleasure. He pursues exploring pleasure. Now the English word pleasure should not be taken as something forbidden necessarily or something questionable. What he's doing is, is he's testing various kinds of joy. Things that can bring us experiences of gladness, like laughter. I mean, just look at the text. First he says in 2, he mentions laughter. And then he says, he says drink or wine. And then he goes on to to describe uh, celebrations and other things. And so as you're working down through those verses, what you see is, is that these are things that in the end, if you go to verse 26, all of these things that he describes as pleasures, he says are gifts that are meant to bring gladness or joy. They in and of themselves are not evil. And so... The truth, though, is, is that many people turn to such things as an anesthetic, don't they? To numb themselves from the pain and suffering of life. To try to forget about all their cares and all their worries. To forget about the realities of, of mortality and death. 
I mean, how many country songs do you know where that is the case? Where the singer is just telling you how he wanted to drown all of his cares and all of his worries and all of his losses. Right? It's, it, these things can be true. Pleasure can be used as, as something to numb us from reality. And the preacher is clear though in verse 1. He says, I come to test. He says, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. And then if you go down to verse 3, notice what he says. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart, listen to this, still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man. Did you hear that he states his intent? He's not doing this to numb himself. He's not doing this to simply indulge himself, even though he does go to sinful excess. First Kings reveals that. But he's very clear here that the whole time that he is experimenting with pleasure, his intent, he is setting out, he wants to find out what is good for the children of men. Do you see that? What he means is, is there something lasting? Is there something to gain eternally? He's determined to see if there's something that will satisfy the heart and render the true meaning of life. And what's interesting in verses 1 through 3, through all of his exploring and experimenting, he always has his notebook. He always has his pen. He's always recording his observations. To put it in modern terms, he always has his phone on and his camera ready so that he can video everything that's going on so that he can go back and review it and see, was there something that I was missing? Was there something in all those pleasures that was suddenly the fountain of youth? Was there something there in this world that we live in that does offer to us joys and gladness? Was there something that could unravel this mist-like aspect of life? And so what's interesting is you go to the New Testament, you remember the prodigal son did the same thing. Remember, he went out, he went into the world, he left his father's home. And what did he do? His intention was to indulge, not to investigate. Solomon is clear, he's investigating, not simply indulging. And that's why we need to listen to what he says. Notice the second thing, verses 4 through 8, not only did he experiment in pleasure, he excelled in industry. I mean, look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He made pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Do you see all this? He builds all these elaborate houses and vineyards and gardens and parks. I bet you that he even had his name on a few stones that he put in there. Maybe a few benches that had his name on it and and the, those that helped build it all. And in the end, did any of that matter? And, and it's interesting because if you read these verses here and you compare it to Genesis chapter 2, there's something interesting because it, it, there, there is a echo of the Garden of Eden. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen. Look at Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made up the spring up every tree and is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't it interesting when you read that? Do you see what now is lost in what Solomon described? There's not a knowledge of good and evil in the sense of there, he's searching. Something has happened in this world. Sin has severed us from God. Sin has brought death. Sin has brought judgment. Sin has blurred our vision. Sin has led to all the brokenness that is in the world. And so it, it's almost as if there's, there's, there's this reflection of the Garden Eden. It's a, it, it is God-like in nature as he's describing all these parks and vineyards. 
And in it is the best, I mean, Solomon had access to the best of architecture, landscaping, artistry, and technology. Vineyards, listen to the language, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools to water. There's irrigation systems. And then he goes on to describe populating his world that he created as king were male and female servants and then children born to them. In verse 8, he notes the extent of his wealth. Look at verse 8. The text tells us that he says, I had, uh, I also had great possessions and herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself gold and silver and treasures of kings, provinces, singers, both men and women, and many concubines, delight of the sons of men. L- listen to this. He is male and female servants. He notes the extent of his wealth with herds of animals and hordes of treasures. Treasures that he's gathered from plundering other kings and overthrowing other cities. Treasures that he's received from visits from the Queen of Sheba to other dignitaries of the ancient world. In other words, what he's describing is it's his own paradise that he's created with slaves to do his bidding. Verse 8, singers to entertain his ears. And when it mentions concubines and the delight of the sons of man, all of the sexual desires that he might have, he could fulfill them. Wow. I mean, really? It's like, I mean, you read through that, it's like an MTV video from the 80s, isn't it? And all of us... All of us fools that grew up in the 80s, sitting there watching it, thinking, wow, there's life right there. Right? The rock star life. (laughs) You know, it, it, it goes to show you that if anyone ever tried to make heaven a place on earth, you've heard that song, or have a little bit of heaven right here on earth like Van Halen claimed, if there's anyone that ever did that, it was Solomon. He certainly tried, didn't he? To have heaven on earth. To have a little bit of both worlds. And it seems he did it as you come to verse 9 through 11. I mean, look at verse 9. I mean, after this description of all of this this excellence in industry, he then tells you about his experience of power. Like, Like that song that Imagine Dragons sing. Solomon is on top of the world. Look at verse 9. I became great... On top of the world, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained with me. He's still taking notes. He's still seeing if there, is there, is this going to unlock? Is this going to solve the problem of death? Is this going to solve the aging of life? Is this going to solve the mist-like nature of everything? Is there a gain that's going to just last forever? And so, he's still evaluating that. As he's on top of his empire, with all the wine, all the wealth, and all the women he could ever desire at his disposal. If he lived today, he's an A-list celebrity. He's on the cover of Forbes magazine. And he reaches the top of fame and fortune, of prosperity and power. He could rent a suite at the Super Bowl for $50,000 and have all of his friends. He could fly a private jet all over the world, stay in hotels for $25,000 a night. That's Solomon for you. But I want you to notice something. Look what he says in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did it all. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. I experienced pleasure. Then I considered that my, all that my hands had done and the toil I had experience, expended in doing it, and behold, listen to this. All of it was vanity. And a striving after the wind. I never could really control it. There were certain things about life and existence that were still outside of my ability to determine or control. And notice what he says at the end of verse 11. There was nothing to what? Nothing to be gained. Nothing to be gained under the sun. That takes you back to chapter 1, verse 3. 
And so as we consider this, here's the wisdom applied. What did the man who had everything gain from pleasure? You ready? Nothing. Nothing. He had nothing. He had everything. And he gained nothing. And you know, that testimony is told over and over again. When you read the stories of celebrities and stars and everything else who have everything you could ever want at their disposal, and yet they are miserable. He gained nothing. And it serves as an illustration of what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 16, verse 26. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? You can have all the physical, bodily pleasure. You can enjoy all the good things that bring joy to life. But none of it will save your soul. None of it. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy the soul or solve our problems under the sun. The ca- and here's what I find intriguing. Okay, I'm going to give you my, this synopsis of these first 11 verses. Isn't it interesting that when you go through that, all the categories of verses 1 through 11 are the same places people go today and we go. Right? I mean, the Bible's timeless here, isn't it? You have verse 2, humor. We're just laughing ourselves to death, aren't we? I mean, we're laughing at things that we shouldn't even be laughing at. Alcohol, verse 3. You you have alcohol and drunkenness, nature. You, we'll just go out in nature. That's what Henry Henry David Thoreau, he just he he's he's he went out into nature for two years to see if he could figure out the meaning of life. He has some good thoughts, but he's completely lost at the end of it. Verses 7 through 8, money and possessions, music and sex, 2 verse 8, and then work, work, work. Do you see that? I mean, same thing today. It's the same thing that we give ourselves to over and over again. And if you go back to Genesis 3 verse 6, we are doing the same thing our first parents did. Trying to find happiness and joy apart from God. We want the gifts, but we also want to be our own God. And all the while, gain eludes us. We still have the same problems as all the previous generations. So the pursuit of pleasure renders empty. But that brings us to a second section here, verse 12 through 22. And what you see in verses 12 through 22 is the permanent problem we face. So we've already talked about this in the beginning. That's why I opened up about death. Because really, if you want to drill down to what is the central issue that he's trying to put before us, it is death. And you can't deny that reading verses 12 through 22. This section is the heart of the chapter. What has happened in this world? Sin has happened. And and we have all bought into this lie that we can invent some sort of happiness, C.S. Lewis says, for ourselves apart from God. And the consequence of sin is death. That's the problem. And that is what stops us. Hear me again. Death is the ultimate trump card on all of our pleasures and pursuits under the sun. Death makes fools out of all of us, one author says. It robs us of everything, including the people that we love the most. It drains life of meaning. Doesn't it? Listen to what he says here. Three observations that Solomon makes. The first one is in verse 12. It's a difficult verse to interpret. I'm going to just tell you what I think, and then we can talk about it afterwards. No one will reach a different conclusion than the king. That's what he's saying in verse 12. I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done, already been done. In other words, what he's saying is, is that no one is going to reach a different conclusion. I mean, he has more wealth and more experiences than any of the rest of us. Why wouldn't we just settle with what he says? His experiment stands for the ages. 
And most agree that he is saying no one is going to reach some other conclusion than what he's reached through all of his experiences. And then in verse 13 and 14, he just hits us straight in the forehead. Morality is not the answer to our mortality. Because in verse 13, look at what he does. He says, then I saw that there is no more, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So now, now he's back to thinking about wisdom, he's thinking about knowledge, he's thinking about, he's, he's thinking about foolishness, and he's saying, well, I, I mean, certainly it's better to be wise than a fool. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He doesn't have any idea where he's going. But then notice what he says. He says, he even says there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. And then he says, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What's he talking about? Death. He seems to be going somewhere in verse 13 and 14 as he says there's an advantage to walking wisely than living foolishly. We all say amen. He alludes to this, but he doesn't explain it. You'll have to wait. Instead, he wants you to know that morality is never going to solve your mortality. Listen to what he says. He says, I perceive the same events that happens to both, the fool and the wise man. Morality will not change your mortality. But, but truth is, that's where, that's where we want him to go. Well, what we want him to do is say, okay, well, all right, Solomon, so why don't you just talk about the evils of excess? Set up some regulations on our behavior. Remind us of the rules. Give us rules, Solomon. Now, he does give rules. Read Proverbs. But in Ecclesiastes, he's not going to go there yet. You know why he's not going to go there? Because he wants to keep driving this point that death is coming to all of us. If he gives us rules, that'll make us feel good about ourselves, right? Well, I mean, at least I'm not as immoral as that guy. But Solomon's going to say, well, it doesn't matter because you're going to die too. So it, it, it might make you feel good, but it doesn't fix the problem. Riding on your tombstone, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't chew, or run around with girls who do, doesn't mean a whole lot, does it? And what I mean by that, it didn't prevent you from ending up in the grave. That's what Solomon's trying to tell you. It doesn't change the fact that both die. Rules will not redeem us. Morality does not cure the curse of sin or undo the fact of death. The wise man ends up in a casket and so does the fool. Now, he says that in verse 13, 14, because in verses 15 through 22, eight more verses, eight more verses, he wants to say to us, we share, all share the same end in death. He presses further. He, he even says in verse 15, well, what's the point of wisdom or following God's ways, which do lead to gain? Now, and he, remember, he doesn't go into, he doesn't fall off the rails here. It does lead to gain. But he's asking a, a very human question. What good is it if in the end we all die? Now, see, the frustration for the reader is that he doesn't answer the dilemma. You want to yell and say, answer your question. And, and yet at the same time, listen to me, he's not saying we should just go sin. That's not what he's saying. Again, consider the end of the book. But we're not at the end of the book unless you want to be here all day and I'll preach all the way to the end. But instead what he's doing is, is he's making you think about death. So he's not, he's not saying that it's, it's, it's a waste to live for God. It's not a waste. There is purpose to it. But he's not going to explain what it is yet. And he's not going to say, sin, we should just all sin and just live any way we want to. Because that is foolish and there's a reason it's foolish. But he's not going to tell you why yet. Instead he's saying, life is havel. He repeats it, doesn't he? It's vain. It's vanity. It's grasping after wind. You're going to die. Death will come to all of us. And then in verse 16, look at verse 16. He says that the wise and the fool will not be remembered. 
And then in verses 18 through 22, he says that you will gain wisdom, you will work hard, you will endure sorrows, and then anything you will earn will probably be left to someone who is foolish, and then they will waste it all away. That's what it, I mean, I'm giving you a very brief summary of those verses, okay? And I know what you're thinking. What you want to say is, stop. You can't wait to leave this afternoon so you can go get on social media and read all those cherry-picked verses that people post to make you feel good. <laughs> because we don't post verses like this, do we? Do we? It's almost like what the Bible's doing through Solomon is he's got a hold of our arm and he's turned it and he's pushing it and pushing it and all we want to do is scream uncle or mercy so he'll stop. I want you to notice what he says in verse 17. He says, I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. And so if you're exhausted by this, Solomon is exhausted too. He says, I hated life. He hated his toil, verse 18. And but, but here's what Solomon's not going to do. He is not going to moralize the condition of life under the sun. And he is not going to spiritualize it. He's going to speak how we really feel at times. He's not going to come alongside of us and say, and lecture us in theology. He will, but not right yet. Because right now he wants you to get a sense of life under the sun. Nope, what he's saying is, when he says, I hate life, that's not fatalism. What he is saying is, I hate the curse that is in on this world. He's saying, I hate what sin has done to me, to my family, and to the world. What he is saying is, is I hate death. I hate funerals. I hate hospitals. I hate cancer. I hate sorrow. I hate loss. And you know what? So should you. And if your theology makes you so high and holy that you don't feel this, then maybe you need to come down to Solomon's level. Or, or if somehow you just want to live on the wave of positivity and you just don't want to think about this, you need this book of Ecclesiastes because it is the medicine that we need for our souls in life under the sun. And here's the wisdom applied. Don't you agree? Aren't you glad he said it? Aren't you glad that he said, I hated life? Because you're going to feel that one day. You're going to look at that child and what they're enduring. You're going to look at that situation and that circumstance. You're going to look at those sorrows and those sufferings. And you're going to say, I hate these things that are happening in this world because of sin. And so here's the wisdom applied, okay? The wisdom applied is this. Solomon is being relentless on making us think about death because we refuse to. That's what he's doing. All the way through verse 22, he is being relentless because we refuse to. We don't want to think about this. We will use everything as an excuse not to think about death. It's always been the case. Remember Pascal, who I mentioned in the beginning? He said this 400 years ago. As men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance. Now, isn't that an interesting observation? They have taken to not thinking about it to become happy. If I don't think about death, I can be happy. And he says the sole cause, this is interesting, he says that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. We are scared of quiet silence we have to be busy because when we're not busy we have to think and we have to think about reality and you know and, and, and if you read if you read Pascal's writings 
and, and, and how they just, they, they, they reflect so much of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's interesting because, because what he says is, is he'll say that, that, that two things distract us, that keep us from facing ultimate questions about death. Diversion and indifference. Or distraction and indifference. We are constantly distracted, aren't we? I mean, it's no different now than it ever was. And, 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 and so for us, it's I have reels that I have to watch. And, I, and I'll watch them, just so you know. I will watch them, okay? Um, I have, I don't, but I know some of you have weapons and wood you have to collect for your Fortnite game this afternoon. Video games, right? Distract us. Or you have school. You have sports every day of the week. You have to work long hours. You don't have time. You don't have time to stop and think about these things. And it's interesting because in a day of endless technology that is supposed to life make life easier and less busy, we are more busy than ever. We are busier than ever. And we are more distracted than ever. We just don't have time to look death in the eye. And all the while, we're really pretending that death doesn't exist. But keep this in mind. It does exist. And death is looking at us. I mean, we're so distracted that when when AT&T towers went out and we lost signal, I mean, I'm driving down the road thinking, what am I going to do? I don't have a map. I can't reach human beings. I'm going to have to drive and, and think or, and my wife's glad because she's like, well, he can talk to me, right? You, you, you follow this? We're distracted. And the preacher hits us on the head. He takes our devices. He puts them on silent. In Ecclesiastes 2, he sits us down in the waiting room and he gives us the test results and he says, it doesn't look good. We're dying. We're dying. But here's the irony of it all. That's actually point number three. That's the perspective we need to live life. All right, you ready to end in a positive note? I know you are. What he's driving at is that death teaches us how to live and gives us perspective. It is, it is the, our greatest need And these chapters have nailed it to our foreheads so that we are ready to live in chapter 3. We're ready to live life. We're We're ready to pass through time. We're ready to apply wisdom. But we can't do it until we start at our grave. And in verse 24, he gives you the perspective that you need. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he says here, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Well, wait a minute. That's an interesting conclusion, isn't it? But notice he's going to bring something in on verse 24 that he didn't mention in verse 1 through 3. It's all from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can have enjoyment? So, so there are two things. First, what he wants to drive home is we are dying, so we should just live like it. But to live like we're dying requires this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now you're thinking, well, hold on a minute. Eat, drink, and be merry? No. Not just because tomorrow we die, but eat, drink, and enjoy the good things God has given you because they come from Him. That's what he's getting at. He's saying to us, work, build, labor, raise children, be married, enjoy your marriage relationship, do all the ordinary, mundane things because they actually all come from God. Yes, even the Cheerios all over the floor, even the pile of clothes that need folded, even the prognosis that you did not want. All of this comes from a sovereign God and is meant for us to receive and to embrace and to live out our lives under the sun that is ruled by the God of the universe. 
If you, and now here, listen to me. All of it, all of these things are gifts we receive, not gods we worship. If you sever created things of life from the Creator, they become idols to which we offer ourselves. And that's what we're doing, aren't we? We're offering ourselves. People offer themselves to sex and pornography, offer themselves to drugs and alcohol and all sorts of different substances and evils. People offer themselves to work, to all sorts of different things. Some of those things that I've mentioned are just our evils. But the point that I'm getting at is, is that the good things God has given us, death enables us to see things of earth as temporary, with limitations. They're not ultimate. Food and drink and laughter and love and music All of these things are wonderful, but none of these things were ever meant to give us meaning. Paul says food is meant for the body, but we're not meant for food. That is, we're not meant to devote ourselves to food or to sexual pleasure or to any of these other things. Jesus told us to not store up treasures on earth where decay happens and thieves steal. He tells us to not be anxious over clothes and food. Is what Jesus is saying is, is that clothes are evil, food is evil, that, that having possessions is evil? No, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, they are, what we do with them can be evil. Don't live for those things, but instead live for the kingdom of God. Live until you die for God and his kingdom under his rule, which includes both life and death. Death limits us because of the fall and the curse. But when we accept the reality of death, we're able to live life, not, not, quorum, not, not carpe diem live life. You know what that is, right? Seize the day. Just live it up, right? Just live it up. That's carpe diem. The Christian lives coram deo. All of life for the glory of God. That's how we are to live. And so it's interesting because there's a song, and I intended to, in, to kind of point to it. There's a song by a by country music singer Tim McGraw called Live Like You Were Dying. It's an interesting song. It's not a bad song, actually. It actually captures part of the essence of what Solomon is saying here. Now, outside of skydiving and rock climbing, which I'm doing none of those, okay? But what he does say in that song is, is that death helps us love deeper, speak sweeter, grant forgiveness to others, and live in light of eternity. But of course, McGraw misses the whole point that what death teaches us is to live our lives in the beautiful light of God and the gospel and to give ourselves fully to his glory. Here's why, second point, we're all dependent on the God who gives. Three times in verses 24 through 26, he uses the word gives. C.S. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and an ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Instead of living for the pleasures of life, live for the glory of God. And notice in verse 25, he says, he says, for God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Isn't that interesting that he says that these things come from God? Wisdom, knowledge, and joy do not come in a gift box, but from the God who gives. And the emphasis on give is this. It is God who gives enjoyment and satisfaction in life. Apart from God, you would have nothing. And apart from a relationship with Him, you and I will never be satisfied. So to the person who comes to God in faith, acknowledging their sin... And their need for Him. Trusting in the, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, alone for salvation. To Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and eternal joy. Let me ask you this question. Who could save you? Who else can rescue you? You need to hear what Scripture's teaching here. God has given us far more than created things. God has given us His Son, And He gave His Son to the suffering and judgment of the cross so that you could be saved. 
God gave His Son to the terror of the tomb so that He would rise triumphant over death and the grave. God has given Christ so that you and I could be saved by His grace. And so apart from God, there is no hope in life or comfort in death. But through Christ, there is eternal hope in life and eternal comfort in death. And that's the perspective you need. Because you know what? Solomon brings us all the way around. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, we're standing in front of the God who has created this beautiful world, who's put a curse on the world because of sin. But this God has also given us His Son. And for us, on this side of, of the story of redemption, we know that this God has given us salvation through Jesus Christ. Is that your perspective? So let me ask you, do you have that perspective on living and dying? Or are you trying to get from the world something it's never going to give you? And in the end, it's all going to wash away in death. So how do you respond then to death? How do we respond to this? Well, death gives you the perspective you need because it leads you to the gospel. To the one who has conquered death so that you could live and live the way you were created to live. But today, for you here today, really there are are five ways you could respond to death. You can distract yourself could do that you've got to go to lunch you've got to play Fortnite this afternoon you've got practice later today you've got friends to entertain later right distract yourself just keep burying yourself in all of the busyness of life and just forget about it you could downplay it as well you, you could diminish death just downplay it Downplay it in the sense that it's just natural. It's just a natural thing. It happens to all of us. But really, is that real? Would you go into a hospital room and that, that would be the comfort you'd give? You know it's more serious than what you imagine. You could also despair. You could just become depressed and say, man, I mean, this is just, I mean, but it's reality. Or you could delude yourself. Well, if I just work out enough, if I just eat right, if I just, you know, apply this aging cream, if I just, you know, if I freeze myself, whatever it is in you, that's delusional. It's delusional. Not that we're not to take care of our bodies, but you follow me? You're not going to outpace death. You're not going to avoid it. Or you could do this. Bow your knee to the God of heaven. And give yourself to Jesus Christ. And trust in his death and resurrection. And live your life for him. And die with the hope of salvation. I would say, that's how we should respond to death. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last day he will stand on the earth. I fell at his feet, John said, when I saw him, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. And that same Jesus invites you to come to him today. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Just remain seated for just a moment. As we prepare to pray, I I want to just simply extend this invitation. We're not going to sing That doesn't mean there's not an opportunity if you're here today and you have a fear of death and you are concerned about what you've heard and and you have questions that you need answered. I want you right now to understand your first and foremost greatest need is to admit that you're a sinner before God and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Trust him for salvation. Trust him with your life and with your death. That's your greatest need. Call out to him right now and he will save you. And as you leave today, if you'd like to talk more about any of these things, I'll be available to talk to you. And I extend that invitation to you even when we close out our service.